You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. episode of Market Champions is sponsored by Predicting Alpha. Predicting Alpha is Bloomberg for the retail option trader. They give you access to data that has only been available to institutional option traders for decades. You receive thousands of dollars in data, hundreds of hours of education, and personalized support for just $79 a month. I know Sean and Jordan personally, and what they have created at Predicting Alpha is something truly special. If you want to find a real, quantifiable advantage as a trader, join Predict Alpha today. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Ewan Sinclair um, from Whole Tactical. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and welcome to Market Champions. Thanks for inviting me. So one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, you've had a career as a market maker, I believe in the 90s. And so one of the things that you've mentioned was that market making is probably the most difficult uh, form of trading. So what is it that makes market making so difficult? Well, I'm not sure I'd say it's the most difficult. I think, I mean, I wouldn't like, there are lots of styles of trading and I haven't done all of them. So I wouldn't like to make a blanket statement like that. I think the thing with market making though is it's much, much more difficult than people think. People think you have two-way flow, you make a bid, you make an offer, you trade on both sides, you make tons of money. Uh, And it's not like that at all. Uh, You don't get to, you don't know what the flow is in advance. So the flow is almost always in the short term, positively autocorrelated. So you tend to get a flood of orders all going one way. So the way you adjust your bids and your offers in response to that is quite a delicate problem because you want to be trading because that's how you make money. But if you trade too much, you're going to be trading too tight and you won't make enough on each individual trade. So it's actually a fairly difficult, uh, if you want to get mathematical, it's a control theory problem. And on top of that, you're trading options. So you get you have to deal with all the Greeks that you get. And you're also likely to get a position that isn't one that corresponds to your idea of fair value. So you'll often get a position you don't want that's changing rapidly and you have to be making all of these adjustments at the same time. So it's, it's complex and yeah, it's a complex, fairly difficult process to do. It seems a lot easier than it is. You know, simply because it is complex, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions on market making. So what are the major misconceptions that you've noticed that a lot of traders have on market making? I guess the biggest one is they think market makers somehow can manipulate things. And market makers are the last people to be able to manipulate things. They're completely at the mercy of the order flow. So if there is market manipulation, it's the people throwing the order throw sorry, the order flow down the throats of the market makers. Market making is purely reactive. Um, And when there is, say, for example, stocks being pinned at certain strikes, you'll often hear 
oh, it's because the market makers want these options to expire worthless. The, generally, the market makers are the ones who are having most of the problems at that point. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is people, I mean, people think the market makers somehow get news. Market makers don't even have a chance to look at the news. You'll typically be trading, something will happen. You'll scramble around trying to do things and adjust. And then half an hour later, you'll get to look and see what actually happened. So generally market makers don't see the news. They don't even care what the news is. They just care what the market's reaction to the news was. So I guess they're the, the big ones that market makers have control over either information or inventory. Market makers really have no control over any of those things. And you know, when you were a market maker, you had to do a lot of things manually. You, know, you had to track inventory manually, you had to carry out orders manually. But today, you know, with companies like Citadel, you know, a lot of them are mostly algorithmic. So have you seen a stark change in the way market making is done? And have you seen the influence of algorithms uh, you know, change the way markets are functioning today? Um, I don't think the algorithms have changed the way the markets are functioning because the algorithms are very much just a computer program designed to do what market makers used to do manually. So it's essentially like a Bayesian learning program you do a trade, you adjust the theoretical value of that option. As a result, you adjust all the other theoretical values of all the other options because you've got a big covariance matrix or whatever. And this is basically what market makers were doing in the 80s. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just been put into a computer. So I was actually around writing one of the earliest of these systems. And that's really as it evolved, it was evolved to slowly replace the traders. It wasn't, oh, we've got a completely different new way of doing things. Right. Um, so I guess the biggest thing is that there used to be thousands of traders, each trading one or two stocks, whereas now there's one or two traders, each trading a thousand stocks. So the, how do I put this? the number of human opinions that go into the market are a lot fewer than they used to be. And I don't know if that's really a problem or not, but it's certainly different, but that's true of the whole market structure. There used to be thousands of little trading firms and now there's really only, you know, 10 major option trading firms, probably the top five do 80% of the volume. So that that's a problem that definitely makes the ecosystem a lot more unstable. Like if, if one of these big five firms go under, then we've got a major problem and even worse, there's only sure. three, there's only three clearing firms now, really. So if one of them goes under again, it's a major problem. It doesn't really matter if a hedge fund blows up, but if one of these liquidity providers or clearing services blow up, that's a big, a big issue much worse than it would have been 20 years ago. Does your career as a market maker give you sort of a different perspective on trading and strategy since you sort of understand, uh, understand uh, what the insides are like as well as, you know, you're still a positional options trader? Um, not really, to be honest. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if you're an engineer and you become a race car driver, You've got a better understanding of how the car works, but that's not really the difficult thing about that job. Um, 
there's a slight, there would be a slight advantage in something like an automated execution system if you were trying to design that. Um, but I don't use automated execution systems anyway. So I'm not sure there's much carryover to be honest. So now I want to move to more of sort of option strategy. So now Ewan, one thing that I have noticed uh, from previous podcasts is I've seen you talk a lot about finding areas where the variance risk premium is overpriced. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what the variance risk premium is, it's uh, the tendency of implied volatility to be overpriced comp uh, compared to realized volatility. So can you go into detail about how you find these overpriced risk premiums? Um, well, I think more important than going into it in detail is going into it generally. I think the thing you have to realize with a risk premium is it's right there in the name, it's risk. So you have to look for situations where there are obvious sources of risk and then decide if they're fairly priced or not. So in order to collect the risk premium, you have to take some damn risk. And a lot of people don't really want to, which is exactly the reason it tends to be there. So look for situations where you are most nervous about doing the trade. So for example, there's a very well-known risk premium. And I'll tell you this because you can't really make any money out of it. Um, most of the decay in options, so most of the variance premium is realized overnight. So it's realized in those times where you can't hedge. It's realized in the time when you're exposed to jumps. So a lot of traders would love to be long overnight and short during the day. And because a lot of people want to do that, there's no money doing that. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. So you have to really look, if you're nervous about going into a situation, that's when there might be a variance premium. I mean, there might not be. I mean, the, the ultimate thing to do is test it. You know, you, it's easy to come up with lots of reasons for why things might be true or should be tr true. But ultimately, it comes down to, you know, looking at some numbers and seeing if it would have worked. Could you go sort of more into the details about how you uh, find these premiums? Um, well, that's pretty much it, actually. It's you find a, a situation where people might be nervous. So, for example, I don't know, the election. You've got a, a situation that is uncertain. And when there's a situation that's uncertain, people are going to be nervous about it. And as a result, the implied volatility is going to get very high. And then you have to go and look for similar situations in the past and see, see what happened. I mean, it could be that options are cheap before elections. I mean, they're not, but that could have been true. That's not intrinsically impossible. So after you've come up with these things, really the only thing to do is look at some data. I mean, theory and supposition only go so, so far. Eventually you've got to look at some numbers. That is true. And, you know, it might be a naive belief that once you find an inefficiency, it is easy to make money. So could you give us an example of an inefficiency that you've traded in the past and what it took to actually extract money uh, from the markets? Um, well, honestly, most of the things I trade aren't inefficiencies. Uh, I would say that a risk premium is not really an inefficiency. Say an inefficiency is literally something that someone hasn't noticed. Whereas the risk premium, everyone's noticed it. 
it's just, it's the wrong price. So I just wanted to make that point. But having said that, if you look at a situation like, uh, I don't know, 2016, 2017, the volatility in the market was really low. And the implied volatility was much higher, as is often the case. You know, when people think that when vol's low, it's a good time to buy options. And that's completely the wrong way around. When vol's low, it's almost always a good time to sell them. So I think just off the top of my head, the VIX was around, I don't know, 10, 12. And the realized vol was something like six. So that's like an enormous volatility premium. The problem is, if you do that through options, because it's a low volatility, the options have high gamma. So you've got to do a lot of hedges. And once you do a lot of hedges, you've got a lot of path dependency. So it's a situation where in advance, you think there's an edge. Subsequently, if you just look at the vols, you will see that there was an edge, but it's not trivial to get it because depending on exactly how the underlying moved, you may or may not have made money. Whereas if volatility is, so there was an example where you might've had a 50% volatility premium, but if volatility is 30 and the subsequent realized is only, I don't know, 25. So the percentage volatility premium is much lower. That's actually a much easier premium to get because there's a lot less gamma associated with it. So monetizing things is different from recognizing them particularly in options, because there's all those path dependency and hedging effects, which you don't get. And if you're trading a stock and you think it's going up, well, you buy the stock. And if you were right and it went up, you'll make money. Um, which is interesting, actually, because that's a case where making money is easy. So finding those opportunities is hard. Whereas with options, it's actually fairly easy to identify some of these issues. Um, it's easy to find the trade. It's just hard to monetize the trade, which is generally the way it is. If something's easy to find, it's usually hard to trade and vice versa. You know, if you had to take, say, a blank example of, um, so say, of uh, implied volatility is at 30, and then, you, and then your opinion is that volatility should be at, say, 20. So what goes on between finding that inefficiency and actually placing the trade? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing would be, like I said before, it's like you identify a situation that people might be nervous about. Then you've almost certainly got some time series model to forecast realized volatility. You wouldn't just look at what realized volatility is. So you'd use something like Garch or one of the Garch families. Um, and there's a lot of wrinkles about that as well. Depending on what you're trading, you'd use a different kind of Garch, different frequencies and so forth. Um, so then you get your forecast of what the premium is. Then you'd choose the strikes and the expiration, which most closely match that. So that might be a straddle. It might be a very wide range of strikes, depending on where you think the underlying is going to move. If you think the underlying is going to move in a trending way, you'd want to have a range of strikes on. So as you moved, you'd still have vaguer exposure. If you think the underlying is just going to sit there, well, then you'd probably just want to have a straddle on. And I mean, in either case, you're going to be delta hedging, but your vaguer exposure is going to be changing as well. 
So there is, with options, you definitely have to decide how to structure a trade once you've found the source of edge. But a lot of people get confused about that and they think that's where the edge is and there's no edge in, in that. It's one of those things you can do better or worse than someone else, but it's not a source of edge in itself, which is why, well, it's not why. There's a lot of idiots on YouTube who are like trying to convince people to sell iron condors or something like an iron condor is some sort of magic. And it's not, it's entirely there because of the variance premium. And if you don't know that, and you just think you can sell iron condors, well, you're really just doing something you don't understand. And it might work for a long time. It probably will work for a long time because the, the reason behind the trade is there, but it's not the reason you think it is. And it's certainly not because you're doing an iron condor as opposed to a butterfly or a straddle or a strangle or a bunch of other things. Now at the start, uh, you know, you sort of differentiated between um, trading of uh, trading variance risk premium and trading an inefficiency. So what exactly is the difference uh, between the two? And is there like a, is there a difference in the way you actually trade them? Well, yeah, the difference is like the inefficiencies are going to be there until other people notice them. Risk premium are going to be there all the time. So a risk premium is something you can really structure your entire life around. Like you pretty much know the variance risk premium is going to be there forever. It's going to have periods where it's better and periods where it's worse, but it's been there for, you know, as long as we have data. So you can structure an entire business around that. Whereas with inefficiencies, they're not going to last. Um, some of them might last for a year or so, depending on how esoteric they are and how many, how obvious they are. Some of them will only last for weeks. So when you find one, you should trade it as big as possible. I mean, it's okay to trade risk premium cautiously because you don't have to make all the money off them immediately. But within efficiencies, if you don't maximize the possibility, it'll just go away. Um, and that, ha that, happens, that happens all the time. I mean, that's the nature of an inefficiency is that it won't last. So you do have to trade them differently, which is why it's important to realize what you're dealing with. And you know, you mentioned uh, that a lot of people try and use gauge models and to try and forecast volatility. So I'm curious, uh, you know, one of the things you said in a podcast with Corey Hofstein was you, uh, you said that, you know, number one, a lot of institutions are relying on garbage models and garbage models are now an academic favorite. So, you know, when everyone does one thing, the edge is going to go away. And on that podcast, you talked about, and I quote the word factors as being a source of alpha. So could you go into more detail on what you meant by that? Um, okay, first the Garch thing, it, you, you still need a volatility forecast to do lots of things. You need it for calculating sizing. You need it for calculating hedging strategies. But 20 years ago, if you just fit a Garch 1-1 to a, a stock history, there was edge in that. That's all you needed to do and you'd find edge. Um, so it used to be an actual source of edge and it hasn't been for a long time, but you still need it. And it's one of those things that you still have to do. And some people do it better than others. And it's an important, whenever there's something you can do, you should do it. 
you shouldn't just sort of give up on it because it's not as useful as it once was. It's still something that is worth doing. Um, so the factors thing's a completely different situation. That's a lot of the time series information is no longer there. Like, so the Garch thing is a particular instance of a time series phenomenon. Um, and time series have been really heavily picked over because it's, it's very easy to analyze that now. Um, it used to be difficult because you'd have to get the data and format the data and then write a program in like C or something. And nowadays you can just write a couple of lines of Python or R and it will run, you know, it'll give you a gauge forecast for every stock in the S&P 500 in a matter of minutes. So when something's technologically that easy, it tends to lose its efficacy. Um, so I think you've got to start looking in different directions. And one of the directions I think is promising is the fundamental fundamentals. So we've known for a long time that stocks react to certain factors like low beta, size, value. It's very likely that volatility of options does this too. Um, so for stocks, for example, people have shown that value stocks react value stock options have different characteristics to growth stock options. But that, that, that hasn't been picked over nearly as much. There are maybe five or six papers on this. So I think that's probably the next place you could gain edge. And the other thing is, you've got to realize all of these trading firms are doing the same thing. Like, there's no difference between what Susquehanna and Citadel and Jane Street or whoever, they're all doing the same thing. And it's based on what people used to be doing 20 years ago. It's, it's one similar idea, executed better or executed worse. Or, and there are always details, but it's a very similar process. And it's all based on statistics. Um, so going into the fundamental aspect of it is a place where you might be able to find you might be able to find knowledge that isn't already baked into these big market making firms. I know market makers and they don't know anything about this stuff. It's just not something they've ever looked at. So I think it is, if I had to start right now, I would probably start looking for factor based effects on equity options. Also sectors and things like that. Got it. Now, one of the things that options offer is a massive degree of freedom and liberty to structure precise trades. So now how do you take advantage of that? Um, I'm not really sure what you mean. What do you mean by that? Could you... you know, if you are, you know, if you have a certain specific view on volatility, for example, and you're able to sort of structure that trade so that it meets your needs perfectly. And, you know, you've said, uh, you know, historically that this is one of the best things about options and at the same time, it's the worst thing about options. So how do you personally make it sort of the best thing about options? Well, for a, for a professional, it's, it's easier. I mean, if you're in a bank, for example, or you have swap lines, it's actually, you, there's a lot of options that are actually fairly easy to make it easy to monetize your view. Like you can do variant swaps or corridor variant swaps and things. Um, if you're limited to exchange traded options, well, if you can dynamically hedge those, 
it's easier to isolate the volatility component. If you're a retail trader, it's much more difficult to do that. And that's where people get into trouble because they start overthinking the situation. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect structure. You've got to do something. It's better to do something simply and accept that there'll be variance around the theoretical results. So if you want to sell volatility, do a butterfly, do a straddle, do a strangle. Don't start doing something where you sell a strangle and then you buy four teeny puts and you sell a teeny call and then you start doing a calendar on top of it because you start with a simple view, volatility is overpriced, and then you've just tried to make everything perfect. And all of these other things are really adding uncertainty to your forecast. You're getting further and further away from a very simple viewpoint. Um, volatility is good to trade because it's easy to predict, but you've got to accept that monetizing it is inherently uncertain. So, I mean, ideally, you just do a straddle or a strangle. You don't even buy any teeny wings. Um, if you need to be hedged, and that's the way, the only way you can do it. So if you're not, okay, so I'm not saying don't be hedged, but keep it as simple as possible. Um, that's, and that's something people fall into a trap of. They start overcomplicating things. One of the things that you do a lot, especially in your books, is you quote a lot of academic research. So, um, you know, as, uh, as you're, you know, you, you have a PhD from Oxford and, you know, you understand academic research really well, but for say someone on a desk or someone who's sort of new to the game, you know, how much trust can one actually place in academic uh, uh, volatility research and sort of if you are sort of, how do you, uh, how do you differentiate between the good research and, you know, someone who's just making stuff up? Um, okay. So first my, my PhD wasn't from Oxford. It was from Bristol. Um, my bad. My bad. I'm sorry. But uh, I almost went to Oxford, but I chose it anyway. Long story. Um, <laughs> you can, you can trust, you can trust academics in that they will have, they will have done what they've said they've done. I, in finance, I've very, I've never found any outright lies or frauds or even mistakes. It is what they say it is. Now, whether it's useful or not, that really is just something that takes experience. Um, like there are a lot of papers that will be sort of a replication of another study, but done in a different country. Like you'll see someone do a study on whether Garch is useful in the, I don't know, Turkish stock market or something. And these aren't, these are not wastes of time because the more something is replicated, the more faith you can have in it. It's important work, but it also it doesn't really add anything new. Uh, and you'll get other studies that will document an effect that's just, it's there, but it's just too small to profit from. Um, so there's those, and you get some things that drive me nuts where, where people will have the return on a short option position measured as a percentage of the option premium. Um, like they'll say you can make 8% a month and it turns out that means the option premium decays by 8% a month. But obviously if you're short options, you need to put up a lot more money in margin. 
So the return on margin when you work it out might be, you know, insignificant. So sometimes you have to do things like that. Um, so really, that's just experience. I mean, it's just, you, you just have to read a lot of papers. Like I probably read, I don't know, one or two papers every day wow. on average, but you just get better at it. Cause when I was doing my PhD, it would literally take me weeks to read a paper. Whereas now I'll read the abstract of all of them. Uh, I'll read the abstract and the introduction and the conclusion of about 20% of them. And then I'll read all the details of about one or 2% of them. So you just have to sift through a lot of stuff before you find anything that might be useful. And the more you look at, the more obvious it becomes, I guess. And um, one, of, one of the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast was, uh, you know, you took the example of the election and the election is sort of a, a one-off example. So, you know, do you personally prefer systematic strategies or sort of one-off strategies? And could you elaborate on why you do uh, one over the other? You know, systematic strategies is something that's repeatable. Say, you know, you buy at the close, you sell at the open, for example. And, you know, one-off strategy is, like you mentioned, uh, you know, the political election or sort of researching an undervalued company and then buying it? Um, I, mean, I guess I would do both. Um, once something gets to the point where you can statistically show without a doubt that it's a real effect, it's probably just about to end. So you don't really want to find something that is completely systematic and has say, statistically like a t-score of three or something that's too good that's going to be noticed quickly so you really want some situation that's between something that's completely repeatable and something that's totally one off like if something's totally one off you've got no basis for doing a trade on it the election isn't totally one off because there have been other elections uh there have been referenda uh, it has similarities to other big news events like earnings announcements for stocks so you do know something about it, um, but you don't want, you want to play in that area where there's some uncertainty. Um, so you, you, kind of, you kind of want T-scores in the one range. You want things to be to the point where you're pretty sure it's an effect, but not 100% sure. And that's something you've got to get used to. You've got to work, you've got to get used to dealing with situations of uncertainty because that's where the money is. And I sort of now want to move from options to one of the things you're sort of passionate about, which is finding a real edge in the markets. And in one of your books, you know, and I quote, you said that no reputable trading firm has a Japanese candlesticks desk. And now I spend a good half an hour laughing over that. And now one of the, well, one thing I wanted to ask you was how does one actually find an edge in the markets? What are the steps in finding and verifying the edge? Yeah, people get really angry when I make fun of technical analysis. Um, I, I, technical analysis falls into two categories. There's the stuff that's kind of a precursor to quantitative analysis. If you can actually quantify a rule and measure it and test it, I mean, that's fine. That's not what I would, that's not the technical analysis I'm making fun of. The technical analysis I think I'm making fun of, well, I know I am, is where you look for patterns and charts and stuff. 
and you're like, yeah, that's a, I don't know, a falling maple leaf or something. I mean, that, that is just garbage beyond belief. If you can't, if you can't quantify it and systematize it, you, you can't even falsify it. It's not like you can't say it works. You can't even say it doesn't work. It's not, there's nothing there. That's the stuff that I think is just ridiculous. And a lot of people get really upset by that, which again, I, I don't really understand. It's, uh, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm saying your wife's ugly. It's <laughs> if, if what you're doing is based on this and you're making money, then who cares what I think? Um, it doesn't really make any difference and you're not going to convince me and who cares about that either. So I don't really understand why people get so angry about it. Apart from the fact that a lot of them are probably losing money and they don't want to admit it's their stupid method. That is probably a stupid method. That's fairly easy to learn because if you're learning something that isn't there, yeah, it's pretty easy to learn it. Whereas if you want to learn real statistics, it's hard. You've got to actually read real books and things. Um, so anyway, that's technical analysis, and I can't remember what the other part of the question was. Uh, so, so I wanted to ask you, you know, how does one actually find an edge, and what are the steps in finding and verifying the edge? Um, well, I think that goes back to what we were saying before about the variance risk premium and when you'd find it and so forth. You, I mean, like just in general, not like uh, not necessarily just about option. I'm just saying in general. Yeah, it's, it's a similar sort of thing. So this is why, this is where some, the type of technical analysis that's good, this is where some of those people still go astray. You don't start with a mathematical technique and throw it at some data and try and find something. So you don't look at some stock data and then say, when it's above the 30 day moving average, I'll buy it. I mean, that's, that's pointless. What you should do is say, I've noticed based on a number of different kinds of measurements that stocks have momentum. And then you're like, look, these people, this is the advantage of reading widely. You'd say, look, these people studied stocks momentum based on a one year return. These people studied it based on a three month return. These people studied it based on how far it was above a moving average. And they've all showed that there is momentum. So you start with an actual phenomenon that's strong enough to recognize in a robust way like this. It shouldn't be, and there's actually a reputable university that charge students in their MFE course. So it's expensive. And they have some halfwit teaching it where they, He's telling them the 30 day moving average is good, but you shouldn't move a 10 day, use a 10 day moving average, um, which is just ridiculous because the 30 day moving average or the 10 day moving average aren't the important thing at all. The important thing is the identification that there's momentum. Once there's momentum, well, then you choose a technique to measure the momentum and that could be based on the time frame you want to use what you're going to be using it for, et cetera, et cetera. But it has to start with an observed phenomena. So stocks have momentum, volatility mean reverts, um, implied volatility tends to be too high. These are all statements that are much more broad than any mathematical quantification of the statement. So the math has to come second after you've found that thing.
Got it. What is what are some of the biggest mistakes traders make when they try to discover these edges? Now you mentioned that you know they start off with sort of trying out a specific indicator in, instead of finding out a phenomenon. So what are the other mistakes that traders tend to make when they're sort of trying to find a real edge? I think a lot of people start with what they wish would happen rather than what actually happens. Um, like they, they, and this can happen for a lot of different reasons. A lot of people try and put some sort of overall worldview onto their view of the markets. And that could be based on a whole bunch of things. It could be based on their politics or their cultural background or the country they came from or their religion. There's a whole bunch of things that people form a viewpoint about how they think the world behaves and they try and look at the market through that lens. And that, that just do doesn't work. You've got to try and keep a very open mind and it doesn't matter whether you wish the markets trend or not. See, some people say, well, I'm just naturally um, more comfortable with trading trends. So I'm going to be a trend follower. Well, I mean, that's just completely stupid. If the markets don't trend, it doesn't matter what the hell you're comfortable with doing. Your comfort has nothing to do with it. So you've got to actually start with what do the markets do, not what do you hope they do because it fits with your worldview. Right. And you know, one of the things you've, uh, you've mentioned is that edges and inefficiencies usually tend to come and go. So how long or how many losing trades do you sort of need to conclude that the edge has run out and that, you know, it's time to start looking somewhere else? Um, well, there's no, there's no single number for that. Um, you know, how long do you personally tend to? Uh, well, it, again, there's no, there's no, essentially the answer to that is Kolmogorov Smirnov test. You know, you'd split, split your data into subsamples and see if the actual distributions changed. So if you s suspect that over the last week, something that's lasted for two months has gone away, well, run a Kolmogorov Smirnov test and compare the distribution over the last week to over the last two months. Maybe they're different. Um, so that's mathematically, that's the only way to do it. Um, the other thing you should do is you should have an idea of why the trade was there in the first place, because sometimes the reason the trade is there goes away. And it's obvious once the reason's gone away, then you should stop trading it. You don't have to wait for the statistics to catch up. So, uh, hmm. okay, so in sports gambling at the start of this year, when they started playing soccer games in stadiums without crowds, um, there was a bet where home field advantage almost disappeared um, because there was no crowd pressure on the referees. And that was very profitable for a while. Well, that's going to last right up until the point where crowds start going back in. So that's a definite reason. And you can look for when the reason goes away. Now, if you should definitely know that unless you're a super high frequency trader, because then you can just swamp everything with data. You could just get so many data points in an hour 
it doesn't matter. But if you're an options trader, you know, it might take you a year or so to get enough data points to make any statistical conclusion. So if you're an options trader or trade on the daily, weekly timeframe, you really need to have a reason for why things work as well. And you know, have you sort of ever had a chance or have you looked at any academic papers on the test you mentioned on sort of quantitative value investing because it's something that has underperformed over uh, the last decade. So do you think that that still has an edge? Um, have you had a have, or have you had a have, or have you had a chance to test it out? You mean like, you know, buying things on low PE, low PV, and that's sort of it, underperformed over the last decade. Uh, I haven't looked at it. Um, yeah, I, I haven't looked at those in particular. Typically, they, the things go through periods, and where they work and where they don't, and it's always. It, it, in the past, it's always been premature to call the death of these things, and it's happened a lot. So if something's worked for 100 years, you're probably going to need a lot more than 10 years of underperformance before you can conclusively say it doesn't work anymore. Um, but I haven't looked at those in particular. I don't really do any trading on those scales anymore. Got it. Recently, you released a book called Positional Options Trading. So uh, I, I'd... I'd like to ask you to tell the audience a little bit about what this book is about, who is it for, and what they can expect from it. Okay, so I don't want, to, I don't want anyone who's new to options trading to buy it. Um, well, they can buy it. I just don't want them to read it. Um, <laughs> this is not a book for people who have just started trading options. I don't, there's a lot of stuff I just don't cover. I'm not telling you what a call is. I'm not telling you what a put is. I'm not defining call spreads. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what Delta is or how you Delta hedge or anything. It's designed to be a quantitative book for sell side, sorry, buy side traders. So it's not for market makers. My earlier book was for market makers and it's not for banks. It's, it's for people who are trading volatility, but aren't, dynamically hedging, but they want to do it in a rigorous way. So they don't just want to sort of be, there was a big market, a big gap in the market between YouTube videos and academic papers. And it's sort of designed for that huge gap. So the problem with being in, aimed at that gap is a lot of these people don't even think they don't even know that they need the book. Um, so I'm pretty confident it's going to sell a lot worse than the other ones I've written. And uh, I don't know, that's fine. You don't write books to get money. It's true. To wrap up the podcast, I want to ask you, if someone's interested in options trading or just, or just trading in general, what would be the best career path for that person? Would you recommend they work at a bank, a fund, prop trading, etc.? Um. First, I, wouldn't I would recommend you just take the best job you can because it's always better to have a job than be unemployed. Um, it's, you know, it's, I can't answer that because the most important thing isn't where you're working. It's really the person sitting beside you that's important. It's not even your boss because, you know, if you work at, a large investment bank, you're never really going to talk to your boss anyway. Everyone needs a mentor 
preferably maybe two or three years more experienced than they are. And you can't, you're not going to know, there's a lot of luck involved with that. You're not going to know who that person is until you end up sitting next to them. Um, so that person could be at a bank, could be at a hedge fund, it could be anywhere. But you know, you could work at the best firm in the world. And if you don't, if, if, so, if no one's taking care of you like that, you're just not going to go anywhere, which is unfortunate. It doesn't help you. Me pointing that out isn't the answer. But I mean, it's not an actionable thing you can do, but it's the most important thing for anyone's career. Everyone I know who's succeeded has had that person at some point. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'd love to have you on again. No problem. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.